This is Avarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Macro or close-up photography provides a unique perspective, the ability to reveal the beauty of the smallest elements in our world. There's beauty to be found there that's unlike any other photographic subject. Our guest, Mike Motz, knows that, and his images reveal that in a beautiful and an arresting way. But the interesting part of his story is not just what he chooses to photograph, but how he succeeds in making a professional creative life based on the small details that most people fail to observe. Well, Mike, welcome to the Candor Frame. Hey, thanks a lot, Brian X. I appreciate you having me on. Tell me about when you started doing photography, particularly doing it professionally, you were already an owner of a business. You had a painting business. Talk about the transition from that to becoming eventually a, a professional photographer, writer, and instructor. Sure. I actually had two businesses prior to the photography business, and one was a custom woodworking which I built custom furniture for seven years, and I kind of got burned out on that. And then I merged into this painting business. It was just kind of by accident, but I did that for 16 years as a painting contractor. And in 2001, two, the economy in the Detroit area here was started to really drop off with the auto industry. So my schedule of work uh, dropped off, and that gave me more time to spend on my photography. So that kind of slowly built up. But by about 2004... Um, I actually started to submit some uh, images and articles to magazines, and you were actually the associate editor at, at Outdoor Photographer when I had my first article published in 2005, and that kind of started the ball going. And then I saw that I had, you know, was getting a good response to my images, and people were asking me to buy images. And so I started doing the art show circuit, and I got into that. And, and uh, what happened in the Midwest is that the art shows last from April till about September, and, and so that provided me some income during those months. But in the other months uh, outside of, uh, of uh, in the winter months when the art shows were done up here, then there was no more income. So I started looking at workshops. So offered workshops through my work, through my art shows, actually, with a sign in the booth, and I had filled up a whole bunch of classes here in southeast Michigan where I was holding them. So that provided me some income through the winter months. Now, I'm still doing the painting business a little bit at the time, but as I was building up the photography business, I was able to cut back a little more on the, the painting because being the owner of the business, I could set my own hours. So if I needed to take off a Friday or a Monday to go to an art show, I just didn't schedule any painting that, that uh, weekend. And then by 2008, I was generating enough income from the photography between the art shows and the workshops to then stop the painting business. So I've been doing it full-time now for about four years. So I, I have a whole variety of different ways that I make money. So I do, you know, I just actually stopped doing the art shows because the sales were dropping off. And, and so a couple of weeks ago was actually my last art show that I'm doing now. And the workshops that I provide for people all over the country on macro photography. Those have been selling out everywhere I go, so that's generating most of my income. But I also uh, have e-books, and, and I do online workshops and uh, other ways to generate some income along with the workshops now. When you were transitioning, tell me about how that, how that felt 
because you know as you describe it it seemed to have gradually happened over time that as you know the the painting business started decreasing your your photo business started increasing but you know the decision to go in as a photographer as an artist is always mm-hmm. always one that's just rife with a lot of fear and uncertainty <laughs> how t- talk about s- still making that choice because though yeah you loved photography liked you were doing you were making money you know there must have been some doubts in terms of am i doing the right thing should i try to go into some <laughs> other practical line of work to ensure that i'm making an income yeah well I, you know like I, i've already done that transition a couple times when i started my woodworking business i was working actually for a school district as a maintenance uh, worker and and uh, I had transitioned from that business into the woodworking business and I actually got it to the point where I was working two full time jobs basically I was working you know for the school system and then I was working uh, with my woodworking business eight hours a day each so I was basically working sixteen hours a day to build that that woodworking business to a full time job so I had to really work two jobs you know full time then of course when I got out of the painting business, I went through the same transition when I went in, or out of the woodworking into the painting business, I did went through that same transition. Uh, with the photography, you're right, it's it's one of those areas that that it's not your traditional full-time job that most people are able to make money at. And of course, nature photography of all of the photography uh, businesses is one of the toughest ones to make a living in. Uh, so you really just have two options, you either sell your prints or you uh, teach workshops. Well, selling prints is a tough business. Galleries are, are, are not selling a lot. They get a very low foot traffic that comes from most galleries, so you don't, and you don't get a lot of wall space in there. You only, only hang two or three images there, so it's very tough to make money in a gallery. And the art show business was the area where most people could sell their prints because there was a huge volume of, of uh, people attending these shows. The Ann Arbor show, which was my last show a couple of weeks ago, had a half a million people there. So, you you know, you have a better chance of selling at an art show. But now those are even dying off, and, and the sales with the economy are, are really uh, not doing very well. So, uh, But that whole, you know, transition into this this area that is not traditionally a, a job that most people would look at you and say, you're doing what? <laughs> you know, you're <laughs> making money selling prints and teaching workshops. You can make enough money doing that. Yeah, you can if you do it right, if you have good business sense, good marketing, uh, you can make a lot of money doing this. Uh, most artists, what I find, and photographers that are very, very talented at their art are not good at the business sense. And that's where we make the money is having the business sense and good marketing. Uh, so that's where most people fail. Because I see some fantastic artists out there and they can't make a dime because, again, they want to, they just want to spend all their time on the art. And unfortunately... When you're making money doing this, 90% of the time is spent running the business and, you know, 10% is on your art now. Uh, and that, that can be frustrating. What do you think was the most invaluable lessons that you took away from, you know, your more traditional businesses in terms of the painting, in terms of the woodworking that really helped you transition and to become an, a, visit, a really effective business-wise when it came to the photography? The marketing is one of the big things. That's what I was always very good at as far as uh, my other two businesses is I just was able to, you know, work the right ads into the right places and and, uh, and, and was able to get those people to find me because obviously you can have a business, but if nobody knows you're alive in that business, you're not going to get any business. So you have to do a ton of marketing to get your name out there. And of course, word of mouth has always been traditionally the best 
marketing it. So if you provide the best service and a great product, then you're going to have those people out there telling other people about you, and that's going to bring business to you. So the, the number one thing, and, and what I spend the majority of my day, like even today, you know, I've been online all morning communicating with people and talking to people in photography and, and helping people out, and that's what brings people to my business. That's the big part. The other part is that I keep my overhead as low as possible. I know photographers that go out and spend thousands of dollars to build some premium website, and I use P-Base for my website. It costs me 23 bucks a year. Everything that I do in my business is to uh, you know, manage that overhead so it stays as low as possible so that I put more dollars in my pocket and I can survive in this business. Hmm. Uh, so a lot of the things that I see that happen out there, I, uh, you know, and it happens with big corporations, you know, companies that end up going out of business because they overspend on their overhead and, and didn't watch their, uh, their their bank accounts very well. So that's part of what has helped me in, in my business is keeping my overhead very low. When you started to learn photography, you were primarily self-taught. And yeah. I think I've, I've, I've heard you say that there weren't a lot of resources there where you live uh, in the sort of Detroit, Michigan area in terms of workshops and classes. Right. So talk about where did you learn? Where did you get, you know, the knowledge? Did you read books? Did you, you know, scour the internet? What exactly, what resources were you using to sort of develop your ability as a photographer, especially since increasingly you were aware of the fact that you were going to depend on this as your livelihood? Yeah, I started off, um, I actually, before I bought any of my equipment, I went to a, a bookstore and bought John Shaw's Nature Photography book and read basically what equipment I needed. And at that time in 2001, it was 35 millimeter. So I bought a used camera and lenses on, on uh, eBay and, and I bought a tripod and a head and, and I bought some Velvia slide film and went out and started shooting at the local parks here. You know, I'm I'm very very bad at reading and understanding. So a lot of uh, the books that I had purchased, which was again was Shaw's and Art Wolf, and and, and I think Nancy Rotenberg, I bought one of her macro books. I, I would really just look at the pictures. <laughs> you know, I didn't I didn't really read a lot of it because I didn't quite understand, and I'm very bad uh, at understanding what I read. Um, so it was really just looking at the pictures and getting ideas for subject matter and composition. But I started out mainly wanting to do landscape, and I only was able to get a couple weeks away to uh, shoot and could afford to travel for a couple weeks out of the year. And and when I traveled, of course, I was able to shoot my landscapes, and it was fun. But the other 50 weeks out of the year when I'm back home, I'm living in you know northern suburbs of, of Detroit, and there's just not much here landscape-wise to shoot. So the macro photography, uh, the availability of subject matter, which is everywhere, uh, allowed me to shoot uh, the other 50 weeks out of the year. So that's kind of how my passion for macro uh, was developed. But it's really all self-taught by just really experimenting and, and uh, trial and error. So like I said, my painting business was dropping off. So there was a lot of days that I didn't work, didn't have any work. So I would go out and shoot. So I would get out four or five days a week to the parks and I'd be shooting. So that's how I developed fairly quickly. It was because just as I tell everybody, you know, if you want to become good at this, get out and shoot as much as you can. So if I'm out there shooting four or five days a week for a few years, you, you tend to develop and you tend to learn uh, just from trial and error. So that's for me how it happened. Now, as far as like having an eye for composition, an eye for subject matter, that's something you can't teach people. 
it's just naturally have it. It's it's kind of like I used the uh, the idea of if, if music where you could take some of the great songwriters, the Paul McCartney's, John Lennon's, and Billy Joel's, and uh, James Taylor's, all those guys that write hit songs after hit songs. They could teach you how to play a guitar and they could teach you how to structure a song, but they can't teach you how to write a hit song. That's something that comes from within inside of those people that they can't teach. And photography is similar in that way that we can teach the basics on, on, on F-stops and depth of field and all that, but we can't teach people to see and be able to compose naturally. That's just something that comes from inside. And I've been kind of blessed where I have this ability just to find interesting subjects and compose them. So I never really had any um, instruction from anyone because there was no workshops in the area here where I live on macro photography. And again, I wasn't really good at reading books and understanding what they were telling me. So it was just something that for me just happened naturally. And, you know, thankfully I have this ability to be able to see and compose without really knowing any of the rules or the structures of, of a, a photograph. It just kind of came natural to me. Yeah, I see a lot of close-up photography because of the work that I've, that I've done. And mm-hmm. a lot of close-up photography, particularly when it's of the natural world, the flowers and leaves and such, are images that I feel like just merely document what something looks like. And what exactly. I really love about your images is that you really reveal them in a, in a wonderful way. And I think a big part of why your images really resonate with me is, is I think is sort of twofold. One is that it feels like you know exactly what it is about your subject that's drawing you in. And the other one is that you have great control about the things that you include outside of the subject matter, particularly the background. Some of the uh, Mm -hmm. shots that I really love are when you are using reflection, Mm -hmm. like in in the water, and that becomes your background. And I look at those things, and I was looking at them this morning and looking from shot to shot to shot, and I go, that everything in the frame you are in complete control of. And I think that's one of the things that's often lacking in in a lot of the close-up shots where people are focused on the subject, but all of a sudden they're not really paying attention to everything else in the frame, and it diminishes yeah. the shot. Yeah, I, I do what's called a two-subject background. And again, this is something that I just it just naturally occurred for me, and it's just something that looked good to me. Um, but it's, it's, it's uh, just two subjects. There's a main subject that's a very easy, identifiable subject, and then there's an interesting background subject. And a lot of times that background may be something abstract or a little bit different. It usually has some kind of a contrast with the main subject too. So if it's a red leaf on a you know earth tone tree trunk or something, it has this strong contrast. Uh, but the main subject is usually what people's eye goes to. Obviously, is again because it's something that's identifiable that they can they can uh, connect with. And then once they see the main subject, they start to you know, eye starts to wander around the frame and it looks at all this interesting background that's going on. Um, and they're very simple to do because, like I say, it's just usually two subjects that you're working with, so it's it's easier for the viewer, too, to, to kind of take all that in. Uh, you know, a lot of this, um, for me, occurs just naturally. I have people that say, well, what is it that you're seeing when you go out there? What, what, what are you looking for? And, I, and, I, and I, don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's just something that I just naturally see uh, that it doesn't have any way of explaining uh, what it is that I'm seeing when I'm out there. It just happens. <laughs> Once you find a subject and you start considering the background, how long do you do you linger with, with the subject? I know it's going to vary depending on subject matter, but I think that 
that's a big part of a successful macro photographer is their ability to practice a good amount of patience and to really stick around and really control the entire shot rather than sort of sort of the grab shots that most photographers are used to if they're you know vacationing or wandering the streets making pictures yeah that's the other strange thing for me is that I, I i actually don't take very long i'm very quick when i work with a subject and and i i look at it and i know exactly when i see it how i want to frame it and what i want to include in the frame um it ha- happens very quickly and i don't take very very long to set it up or or you know, trying to analyze it from different angles or anything like that. It just, it just this is the way it looks good to me, and that's the way I shoot it. And and I always tell all my students though is that they, you know, when you're starting out in this and you're just learning, that you should shoot a lot of different compositions and use a lot of different f-stops, and then worry about when you get home deciding what you like the best. But I always have this ability to just to look at something and say, this is the way I want it, and I shoot one shot at, at, with that particular composition and then I'm done you know mm. I, I move on and I just don't take a lot of time you know studying the subjects studying the different angles and all that it just it just seems to look natural a certain way to me and that's the way I shoot it I guess I got to take your workshop because every time <laughs> I, I don't do a lot of macro stuff but when I do for me the, the, the oftentimes the challenge is getting the, the the tripod position just right and because I'm you know working with a limited depth of field I'm, I'm trying to refine the you know the the relationship of the lens to the subject and making sure yeah. that I have enough you know enough depth of field or minimal depth of field that my point of focus is right. And for me, that's one of the reasons I don't do a lot of it because that part of it is very sort of frustrating for me. So I'm amazed to hear that for you, it doesn't take that long. How much of what I just said is pretty common for the people that you end up teaching in your workshops? Oh, it's huge. It's it's that depth of field is what, what causes the most problems for people. And that's what I always hear. It's the number one issue that they have with macro photography. And I, and I've made it very simple. This is really simple to do. If you look at my website and you look at the majority of the images that are on there, they're images that have everything from the front to the back and side to side in focus. The whole image is in focus, and that's the stuff that works the best for me. That's the easiest to shoot. I can literally go out and shoot all day by setting my f-stop at the highest f-stop on that lens. So if it's a by 180, it's 3. Point, you know, f to 32 and and, uh, it, you know, if your lens goes up at the F22, your macro lens, then I'd set it at the highest F-stop. And I, if I'm shooting a style of macro where I want everything in focus, I can leave it at that one F-stop and shoot all day long. I never have to change it. Now, a lot of people get worried when they start shooting at those high F-stops because of diffraction. Now, diffraction in the film days was a problem because when you got your images back, you couldn't do anything about it. But in the digital days, just like we correct uh, exposure in Photoshop, and we correct uh, colors in Photoshop and Nick software and all those programs, we can correct the diffraction. We can just add a little extra sharpening and it'll sharpen them. And some people believe that, some people don't. But if you look at my images, you see they're all nice and sharp, and they're all done with those high F-stops. So when you talk about doing macro, it's, it's depth of field is hard to deal with. If you're shooting this style that is particularly 80% probably of my images where everything's in focus, you can do it very easily by just using your highest F-stops. With macro, as you've probably experienced, you know, because we're shooting so close to our subjects, our depth of field shrinks down 
to, to an eighth of an inch if we're shooting wide open, for instance. But if we want everything in focus, we just go to the highest f-stops and it'll get the majority or most of it all in focus. Unless we're shooting at minimum focusing distance of that lens, uh, you know, even at that, if we're not parallel to a flat subject, uh, you, you may not even get it all in focus even at the highest f-stop. But all those images that you see on my website that have everything in focus from front to back and side to side, those are all shot at the highest f-stops traditionally. Let's let's talk about uh, equipment here because I think even though I don't talk about equipment much on the show, um, yeah. there's I think it's kind of important when it comes to this photography because there's so many different ways of doing close up. You have you have filters you can attach to the front of your lens, increase magnification. You have extension right. tubes. You have macro lenses. So yeah. talk about how you use some or all of these in order to get your, your images and, and talk about, you know, when you choose one over the other for, for Sean. Well, I always have used uh, macro lenses, even from, you know, when I bought that first set of equipment uh, back in 2001, I did buy a, a macro lens at that time. Um, so I, you know, I've never used anything but macro lenses for my macro photography. When I teach workshops, I you know tell people about the options that they have. If you have a say a 80 to 200 zoom lens and you want to get some macro capabilities, you can add on extension tubes. These come in a set of three tubes that you can add between your lens and your camera body, uh, and that'll allow that lens to focus in closer. The drawback to using the tubes is the fact that each tube that you add on only works within a certain range. So anything inside or outside of that range, it won't focus. So depending on the subjects you're shooting and how far away you are, you may have to add or subtract one or two or even three tubes in order to get into that range where you shoot. Same with close-up filters that they screw on the front of the lens. They do work for certain ranges, but anything outside of those ranges, you can't shoot your macro. So with a macro lens, of course, they're you know designed so that you can focus from the minimum focus in the distance of that lens all the way up to infinity. If you're really serious about macro, you should just purchase yourself a macro lens. But not to say that you can't work with tubes and, and filters. It's just inconvenient. And again, you have to work in those ranges of that particular tube or that filter so it makes it an inconvenience not to mention when you're adding and subtracting tubes you're constantly taking your your lens off your camera body and of course as we all know with dust and things that get into that uh, camera and stick to that sensor that causes those issues as well so are you usually working one-to-one or do you like doing ultra high magnification for some of your work no i never do what they call micro uh, because uh, we actually have three different phases that we use and what we term macro photography, and that's micro photography, which you get into the higher magnifications where all of a sudden you see a fly's eye fill in the frame. Uh, and then in the macro world, that's in that one-to-one life-size uh, minimum focusing distance of a lens. And then I'm really a close-up photographer. I'm not really a macro photographer. I'm a close-up photographer. What we do is we lump those three terms of close-up, macro, and micro into one term and just call ourselves macro photographers. But I'm really a close-up photographer. Most of the subjects that you see on the website are generally you know, 
larger areas that I'm shooting in. I'm not really shooting in that nowhere near one-to-one. My one-to-one range on my uh, my macro lens goes down to seven-eighths of an inch by an inch and three-eighths, I think it is. Mm. So when you get into that small of an area at one-to-one, you're talking about abstract now. You're not really identifying the subject that you're shooting. So for me, I'm really a close-up photographer, but we kind of just use that term as macro photographers. Yeah. When I tend to shoot this stuff, I usually use manual focus. One, because I want to make sure that my point of focus is exactly where I want it to be. And the other yep. one is sometimes I get endlessly frustrated with the lens racking back and forth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So do, do, you, do you use autofocus or do you use manual or do you go back and forth depending on the subject matter? No, it's always manual focus. And you're exactly right what you said, that it, you have to pinpoint that point of focus within that frame. And your autofocus is going to have a problem finding that exact spot. And with with macro, uh, you know, a lot of photographers tend to um, focus on one point using wide open apertures to blur out the fronts and the backs and that. And so they have to pinpoint that focus. So yeah, manual focus is a must in, in macro photography. Um, and and that's uh, you know, it's another thing that I run into. Sometimes I'll see people that'll say that uh, you know they're auto focusing, and and you really should be manually focusing. Um, and I actually shoot when you're talking manual. I I do shoot uh, you know manual with my f stops and my exposure. Do all that manually as well. But I always tell beginners when they're starting out if they're not comfortable doing with the shutter speeds uh, and exposure that they can just use aperture priority because the main thing is setting your your depth of field and getting your f-stop. You want to have control over that. So you want to manual focus, make sure you get your f-stop for that uh, subject, and then you you can let the camera do the exposure because they do a great job on exposures nowadays. But I still do the manual even on my exposure and shutter speed. Mm -hmm. Even though you're not going to be doing the art sales uh, in the way that you did uh, before, uh, I was very interested in hearing about what people were interested in. And you like doing abstracts, but you found that the images that actually sold were typically not the abstracts. They're the ones where the (laughs) subjects were more sort of clearly defined. And you had some thoughts into why that is, and I'd like you to share that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm really fortunate that I have been in the art show business, and it's been seven or eight years that I've been in that business, and I learned a ton about what people think and the thought process when they view our images, and it's very, very interesting when you hear some of the stories and things that go into it, but when I started in the art show business my very first year, uh, I thought, well, I'm in an art show. These people understand art, and I'll bring all my abstracts, and so I thought that's what would sell. That was a big disaster. Nobody wanted to buy my abstracts. Uh, what they were buying were subject matter that, again, you could easily identify the subject and people could connect with. So the other nice thing about you know being at an art show is you get to talk to your customer. See, when you're in a gallery, you never get to talk to the customer. But in our show, every time someone would buy something for me, I would pump them for information. I want to know what it is you like about this image. Why are you buying it? And why are you willing to hang this in your home? And the interesting thing was always that there was some connection to the subject matter. I had this one really nice shot of a lily of the valley. And one lady said her grandmother had lily of the valley in her yard. And so her grandma's passed on, and every time she sees the lily of the valley flower, she thinks of her grandmother. Another lady said that she, in college, 
uh, her sorority flower was a lily of the valley. So she was buying it based on a connection from when she was in college. Many, many women told me they carried lily of the valley down the aisle when they got married. Again, it's a nice connection to a good day in their life. And you hear these stories all the time. Uh, my leaf images sold very, very well at the art shows. And who doesn't like leaf images? You know, in, in the northern regions where I live here, people love the fall and the change of colors and the leaves. And we go. Some people even plan their vacations around seeing fall colors. So, the, again, there's a good connection to those subject matters. Um, of course, it always comes down to when people are buying your art, does it? does the colors work within the room it's going in? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we hate as artists to think that they're buying it based on colors, but that's part of this business is that when people buy it, it has to match the colors in the room or they're not going to buy it even if they have a strong connection to the subject matter many times. Um, but very interesting how people see that. Also, my soft abstract flowers, which I love and most photographers love because we understand soft focus and we're artistic and so we get that. The people that came into the art show saw those soft focus flowers and they thought there was something wrong with them. They couldn't understand why they were out of focus. <laughs> Uh, one guy I overheard saying to his wife as he's looking at one of my flower, you know, abstracts and soft focus on the wall, he says to his wife, he says, uh, you know, he says, I don't know much about photography, but at least I get them in focus. <laughs> uh, yeah, another, and two other ladies are standing there, and the one lady says the other one, she goes, look at this, it's all out of focus. And she didn't mean it in a good way. She mm-hmm. meant there was something wrong. Because the people that are are into photography generally, uh, you know, have point and shoots. They they just take family pictures and uh, you know of of events at their home or whatever. Um, they have the little you know point and shoots. And what do they do best? They get everything in focus. <laughs> so yeah. so when they view all the images that they shoot, everything's in focus. So they come to your booth and they see these abstract soft focus flowers and they think that. You know, you've got an expensive camera and an expensive lens, and you can't get it in focus. Like, you don't know what the heck you're doing. And also, when we view the world, we don't have shallow depth of field eyes. When I look from, you know, two feet to 100 feet away, it's all in focus. So when I view the world, I view it as everything in focus. And so when people see these images, they don't seem to understand why you would want half out of focus. But again, if I show those same images to photographers who understand depth of field and are artistic... They love them, okay? You know, they don't have a problem with that soft focus. And, and, and also the people that did buy the soft focus flowers and the abstracts were people that also told me that they had art backgrounds or they were art teachers or they had art classes in college. Uh, so they understood that, you know, soft focus and that abstract. So it, it's real interesting, like I say, and it was, I'm glad that I was in the business uh, learning the process and learning and understanding. And I try to pass that along to people that are in my workshops uh, because uh, there's certain images that I always tell photographers, this book, you have your soft focus, you have your abstracts and, and show those to your photographer friends and maybe your art, art uh, friends and stuff like that, but then have those nice, sharp, everything in focus, so easy subject matters to identify for your family and friends <laughs> because those are the people, they don't quite understand those abstracts and the soft focus. So I have my two different styles and I know who to who to show them to and who not to show them to. Yeah. It, it just goes to the point of knowing your audience because that really, really yeah. makes a huge difference because you have exactly. one audience who's just photographers who's going to magnify the image 500% and take a look at the corners <laughs> Yeah. And then you have the average user who's just going to take a look at that 8x10 and go, that's going to look lovely on my wall. <laughs> yep, 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So talk about post-processing because it's, it's inevitably a part of photography today. And sure. some of your images look like they're very subtly enhanced and some are a, 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 take a little more more use of the advantages that the software provides. So talk about your yep. thought process in terms of what, how you decide how much or how little you're going to do to an image when you bring, you bring it into Photoshop or you're using the Nick Nick's software seat or, or whatever else you're using. Well, when I started out, um, I, I did realize with digital, which amazes me today that some people I talk to that have been into digital still don't understand they need to do some post-processing on these images. They don't come out of the camera looking like they do uh, when we finish them after post-processing. But when I started out, I realized that you know I needed a program to do some kind of enhancement. So, of course, I, I've always used elements from Photoshop. I, I never got into the CS programs. I've always just used elements. Uh, and for years, even when I was doing this professionally, I was still using Elements 2.0, which, you know, the students in my workshops always laugh. <laughs> um, but all I ever did was just do the sharpening because they don't come out of the uh, camera sharp. And then, like I said, I, I'm using, I'm getting a little diffraction, so I had to do some sharpening. And I usually add a pretty good amount of sharpening. And then I would go in and I would do some saturation boost and I would do contrast boost. And that's all I ever did to all my images just with using the Elements program. I didn't do layers and all that kind of stuff. So I was doing a workshop out in the Easter Sierra Mountains in California, and I'm looking over this guy's shoulder that was in the workshop, and he was doing some processing on a laptop, and I saw him putting these little, dropping these little points and making circles and isolating areas, and I says, what the heck program are you using there? He says, well, this is Nick's software. It's Viveza. Um, and I was blown away by watching this guy make these simple little adjustments and how easy it was. So when I got home, I called the people at Nick, and I said, look, I want to get you know hooked up with you guys, so, um, you know, Let's see if we can work together, and I'll promote your products, and and because uh, I think they're fabulous. And so, uh, got hooked up with uh, Nick, and, and got the Viveza and the color effects, and found a whole new artistic world for me. You know, and being an artistic person, it was always kind of boring just doing the simple things that I was doing in Photoshop. But when I got into the Nick software with all the filters they have and color effects and all the unique looks that you could add to your images, uh, all of a sudden, you know, it took on a whole new. Uh, world for me as far as processing and, and now processing is a lot more fun than it used to be because it adds another artistic element into our our images so uh, so I start off you know with uh, going into to color effects and I take my images in there first and I go through all the filters and I decide which filter I think uh, looks the best for that particular image and then once I finish you know, with what filter I need. Then I go into Viveza, and that way I can go in and I can fine-tune little areas, maybe adjust the colors or adjust the exposures in little areas of that image. Uh, and then once I get done with Viveza, and if it's an image that has maybe a solid color background with a little noise or something, I'll use their defined program for uh, noise reduction. Uh, but it's it's much more fun processing for me now since I've been using the NIC programs uh, because it adds a, a whole new artistic element into the image that I didn't have before or didn't have the skills to use in Photoshop. With Photoshop, I just, as I was saying earlier, that when I read instruction manuals and that, I, I have a very hard time understanding what they're telling me. And so I always had a, a real tough time with Photoshop navigating and figuring out how to use all the 
different things that they offered. Uh, so I always just use the simple basic, uh, you know, sharpening, color, uh, saturation boost, and contrast boost. Uh, but then when I got into Nick, they're so much easier to use, and it was very, uh, you know, easy for me to understand, and learning curve was very low on that program, so I caught on really quick. Uh, but the programs are just very, very effective, and, and they just do a great job, you know, enhancing our images. One of the fascinating things I saw you do on your P-Base uh, gallery is that you, you posted an image, and then you invited other photographers to interpret that. So they used it, <laughs> yeah. and they brought it into Photoshop or whatever application they were using, and it was fascinating to see the <laughs> diversity and the range of interpretation of that single Photograph. What what was your takeaway when you started seeing those images coming in? Well, we've always talked about this in the workshops. You know, I, I explained to people that you know you can take a subject and, and ten different photographers could to uh, you know photograph that subject, and they would all have different interpretations on how to compose it and things like that. And so I always thought it would be uh, you know interesting to see the difference in, in processing because. Uh, there's, you know, I see images by other photographers and I may think that, well, I would have processed it this way or I would have done a little different. And I always was interested to know, you know, how much difference there would be between, you know, each individual on, on taking the same image and processing it. So, so I just kind of put it out there one day on my blog. I said, you know, I, I always thought it'd be interesting to see how much difference there was in processing from one photographer to the next. And so I offered this image up of uh, a couple of Gerber daisies, and I says, you know, I'll send you the, the raw file out of the camera, uh, and you do your thing on it with whatever processing tools that you use, and let's see how much difference there is. Well, I think we had, I don't know, 40 or 50 people that volunteered to do this, and I posted them on my, my uh, website at tinylandscapes.com. And it was amazing, all the differences, you know, in the processing between one image to the next. So it, you're right. It was very fascinating, and I think a lot of people were pretty shocked when they saw the differences between. <laughs> and some of the processing, I, I, to be honest with you, there were some of them that were processed that I like better than my own processing. You know, I mean, I looked at some. I go, man, I wish I'd have done that, it, because there were some really talented people that are that are very good at taking an images and processing. So, so yeah, that was really interesting concept. And and I've had people email me and they say, hey, let's do some more of those because that was really cool. You know. Yeah, because it really goes to show how differently we all see. I mean, th this yep. spoke more about, you know, post-processing, but it still ties into how we see and interpret and shoot a particular subject matter. Because if everyone had not been there shooting the same the same subject matter, they would have shot it differently. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we could do the same thing with uh, with shooting an image, like you said. It's just set up a subject and let 10, 20 different people shoot it, and you'll get 10, 20 different uh, versions of that uh, image in the post-process. And, you know, to me, the cameras do a nice job, you know, with a uh, giving you a starting point, but the images, the post-processing, what a difference between, you know, the, the image out of the camera and the finished product. And so with the tools that we have nowadays, uh, we can just take some, you know, many times I've taken some bland-looking images and gone into Nick software and just made them fabulous-looking yeah. uh, with those programs. So, yeah, if, you know, to me, the magic happens in that post-processing with those images. And, of course, we have to start with a good quality image to begin with as far as subject matter and composition and all that. But, boy, we can sure really uh, make that thing pop when we go into that post-processing part.
Well, you, you teach workshops where you teach your, your techniques and, and you share your sensibility in terms of shooting close-up photography. But I, I can imagine that a lot of people worry about having enough talent or having the right equipment. What really is important to have to make the most of it? Can you think of examples of students who really kind of took what you had and ran with it? And what was it about them that they were doing differently that has nothing to do with equipment or innate talent? What I do, as far as equipment goes, I'm, I'm a little bit different than most pro uh, photographers. And uh, I, you may know Bill Fortney. Mm-hmm, yeah. Bill just did an article. You know, I was very honored that he did this, you know, about my macro work on his blog the other day. And the one thing that he said that impressed him about me was uh, I had, you know, was at a photo conference talking with him, and, and I told him, he says, what equipment are you using? I said, you know, I'd use a D7000. It's a $1,200 camera. It's not, not your top-of-the-line pro-level camera. And he says, well, why aren't you using these other ones? And I says, well, you know what, Bill? I says, if I use the top-of-the-line pro-level cameras and I use the Nikon and the Canon lenses and all that, and students come into my workshops, they're going to say, well, your images look really good because you're using pro-level equipment. And so I use the, the lower consumer grade equipment uh, because of the fact that I want students to know that you don't have to have pro level equipment to get pro level you know images. Um, so equipment wise, you know I always tell all the students in my workshops that uh, you know entry level cameras nowadays, which are way better than what I had in 2004 for my digital camera, and I was getting stuff published in major magazines, is much better. And so when you have low-end equipment, don't think that you can't produce good quality images. And so that's what I try to make sure that they understand. Because I'll tell you right now, 75% of those people that come into my workshops have lower-end equipment. And they want to walk out of that workshop knowing that they're going to be able to produce good quality images. Now, as far as, you know, what the difference between someone that ends up being, you know, taking, say, one of my workshops and becomes very good and the ones that, that don't, it, it's generally two things. It comes down to spending a lot of time shooting, of course. Uh, I had one lady that told me she only shoots once a month. <laughs> She's never, ever going to be good at photography shooting once a month. So the ones that I noticed that seem to, to progress and do the best are the ones that spend a lot of time out shooting. And then there are those that just have a natural eye. There's two in particular that out of all of my workshop students that I know of that have done some phenomenal, phenomenal macro work. Uh, and again, they have a natural eye to be able to spot good subject matter and be able to compose it properly. Uh, and so, you know, I would say that if you have a good eye and, and, and good imagination for subjects and composing them, um, that's that's really you know, really important and probably the one thing that will help you the most because everybody can learn the technical end of it. I mean, I, to me, it's not that difficult doing the f-stops and, and uh, exposures and, and even the post-processing, you know, the little tweaks and you can, you know, really make your images look nice. But, again, just having a good eye is something that uh, is the most important and some people that come into the class have that ability uh, and some of them don't. And I know people that are very good technically with their equipment, and they do a great job, and they get everything sharp, and they get the depth, you know depth of field looks great. And but many times it's just the subject matter is uninteresting, or they've composed it really badly. It's hard to teach that part of it. Uh, you can give them examples and ideas on how to compose and, and finding subjects, but and some people are able to go out there and and find those great subjects and compose them properly, and then others just can't seem to see it. Yes. And so. So, that, so I would say that, uh, like I said, um, a good eye and a good uh, 
ability to compose naturally is uh, probably the most important part. And some have it and some don't. But I always tell them, too, when they're taking a class, you don't know until you get out there and try. And I always tell them, too, that in the first three years, from 2003 to 2004, I don't have any of those images on my hard drive. Those have all been scrapped because I was just learning. It took me a long time uh, to get this, uh, put it all together. So I tell them not to get disappointed. I also tell them, too, that because I hear people tell me this all the time. They say, you know, I went out the other day and I shot 15 different subjects and I only had one good image. And I go, well, then you were successful that day. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's all I ever did. If I go out and shoot 15 subjects in a day, I'm hoping I get one nice image for that shoot. And that's my success rate. And I tell people, expect a low percentage of successful images in the macro world. Because what we see with our eye in the field doesn't always translate onto a flat screen when we get home. So that's another thing I always try to emphasize to macro photographers, that um, be happy when you get that one shot on that day. Now, the other thing, I did a blog post about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, It's about the numbers. So I tell people, I say, if I get out 100 times a year to shoot, and I have one successful image from each shoot, and I, I've added 100 images to my portfolio that year. If you only get out once a month, and that's only 12 times a year, you're going to have 12 images that you'll add to your portfolio. So it's a lot, a lot about the numbers, and again, about how much you can get out there to shoot, and that's how it builds up. Now, when I look back at that, that average of 100 images a year, I've only got about 900 images that I have on my hard drive that I've kept, uh, and I've been shooting for, you know, since 2001. So that's 11 years, and three the, the first three years, I have none of those images you know, that I kept, so I've got about 100 images a year is what I'm accumulating, and then, so that, that you know, numbers works out real well with that one image per shoot, basically. So. Yeah, and it's an important perspective to have, because even the, if you think about the master photographers out there, the legends of that, that sure. all of their best images don't accumulate to more than a couple of couple of you know if 30 seconds if not even 30 seconds you know yeah yeah and i'm not even talking about like when i say one image per shoot i'm not talking about an image that's going to blow people away i'm just talking about a a decent average good good average image (laughs) (laughs) you know because i think i think i read one time george lepp said i think he said he might get 10 really good images in a year you Mm -hmm. know and and that's you know the the guys that are the pros and that do this for a living and that they have understood that and they and and they you know they know that success rate uh, and I run into people that are getting into photography and they're they're down on themselves because they look at you know a, a day shoot and only have one good image and they think they're failures and I go no no that's that's a good day that's a normal day <laughs> and then they feel better about themselves. Great photographers only show their best work. Yeah, that's yeah. another thing I always tell people. I say, if you're going to set up a website and you only have 20 really good images, just put the 20 images on there. Don't put, you know, 40 other images on top of the 20 that are mediocre because when someone leaves your website, they're going to look at, is, uh, you know, evaluate all those images and say, hey, he's just an average photographer. But if you only put your 20 best, they're going to walk away saying that guy's really good or that lady's a really good shooter. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's the difference. You know, the, the the pros only shoot show their best stuff. They don't show any mediocre stuff. Well, my last question is: I ask each of my guests to recommend or suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and dis- and explore for themselves. So, what photographer? What one photographer would you recommend, and why? Well, what what I've always admired. See, 
you know, I, I feel I have a good handle on macro photography, but I'll be real honest with you. I'm not a good landscape photographer. I'm not a good wildlife photographer. Um, I've done that, and I can say that my images were not that good when I compare it to what I see on the Internet nowadays. What I always admired was the photographers that were good at all phases, and, and I strictly am talking about nature photography because that's what I've been interested in. And so the Art Wolfs and the John Shaws, uh, those were two names that, that um, to me, uh, when I started in photography, their books encompassed all of wildlife, landscape, macro, and it was all good. Um, so I always admired those two photographers in the nature world, uh, again, because they covered all phases of nature photography, uh, and they did it well on all those different styles. Uh, because I know, again, with my own experience, that I, I'm good at macro, but I'm not a good landscape, and I'm not a good wildlife photographer. For me, it was always I admired those people that could cover all ranges of uh, nature photography and do it very well. And so Art Wolf and John Shaw were the two that I always looked up to. So, where do people find go to find out and see more of your work and to find out more about your work, uh, your workshops and your ebooks? Number one stop would be my website, which is tinylandscapes.com. I do a daily blog, so I da- I blog 365 days a year, and that blog is just uh, www.mikemotesblog.com. I also have a macronatureforum.com, and that's a place where uh, macro photographers go and they can post their images in different, you know, galleries of you know, bugs and flora and abstracts and uh, and process images and things like that. And then I have a storefront where you can sign up for workshops, buy eBooks. Uh, I've got some recorded webinars you can get there, and that's just called uh, MacroStoreOnline.com. And then on Facebook, I just started, which has been doing phenomenal. I started three new groups on Facebook. Uh, one is a abstract and soft focus flower group. The other one is a no nature macro group. <laughs> so that's, mm. a, that's, a, that's for the macro stars that, that don't do nature. And then I have a critters macro group for all those bug shooters and people shooting little critters and stuff. Great. Well, I have links to that, all of that on the, on the website. But- all right, cool. Thanks again, Mike, for appearing on the show. I really enjoyed having the chance to talk to you. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. Thanks a lot. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.